Welcome to Outside Inside Radio, which is brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Our collaborative teaching teams include faculty, students, and staff, and our classes include making art, art history, reflection, and the cultivation of a safe space. We're based in the School of Art and Design at San Diego State University and have additional chapters at three CSU campuses. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Transformative Arts, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Hello everyone, this is Ella Turan and I'm one of your co-hosts for Outside Inside Radio. Hi everyone, I'm Kathy Foley-Meyer. I'm your other co-host for Outside Inside Radio. And we are so excited to be here with you today with our special guest, Judith Favor, who is an author and who is going to talk to us today about her latest book. Hi, Judith. How are you? Hello. Grateful to be here and curious about the conversation. Well, let's get right into it, Judith. You're an author. You've written several books. Um, and we always like to ask people, you know, how they became an artist, how they landed on their particular medium of art. So can you tell us a little bit about your own journey? Well, I've been a writer since I could hold a pencil um, at about age three or four, um, but only wrote for publication after I retired from a life as a parish minister and a teacher um, at Claremont School of Theology. But it was that same impulse that led me to befriend Rosie uh, behind bars back in uh, the year 2000. So Rosie is uh, one of the people we're going to be talking about today. She is your co-author on your latest book, Friending Rosie. So yes, tell us a little bit more about how you met Rosie and what your work inside has been. I um, met Rosie through the Mennonite Central Committee. I had written to them asking for the names of women on death row in the United States. That was in 1999. Um, and I wrote two or three letters to Rosie in Chowchilla before she answered. Um, and then once she decided to trust me, uh, then she invited me to come visit her. And uh, I've, I've done that about twice a year for 22 years or so. Wow, that is a long-term relationship. It is. <laughs> so what's it been like um, getting to know Rosie? And, you know, I would say I, it's safe to, safe to assume that I can say the two of you are friends now. So what has that been like over the years, um, building and developing that friendship with her? Well, it, it took a while to develop trust uh, on both, both sides. Um, and I think the shift we we began corresponding on a regular basis um, and then when she invited me to come and meet her in person i was 
nervous about that. I'd never been uh, behind bars in a maximum security prison before. And yet the, the felt experience of being face to face in a visiting room now for for incarcerated women on death row, the uh, only visiting permitted is in a locked room. They have two, attorney room A and attorney room B. So Rosie had to reserve the room for my visit. And then we were locked in together um, in a room that had one wall as glass. And so we were under the watchful eye of the guards at all times, but, but we were able to be close enough uh, to see each other's eyes and to hear each other's tone of voice. Sometimes one or the other of us would break out in a sweat and you know that was visible as well. <laughs> we were able to share food to I would, would go out to the vending machines and, and uh, buy the kind of lunch that she asked for. So we broke bread together. So your most recent book is about your relationship with Rosie. And I was curious um, about the crosses that are depicted on the cover. Is that work that she has done or is that by somebody else in yes. the system? original art. Um, whereas I was a natural writer from an early age, she was a natural artist from uh, early childhood and um, draws sketches, does beautiful calligraphy. Um, so throughout the book, one of her images appears regularly at the end of each chapter. It's beautifully symbolic. It's a pen and ink sketch, but she drew a um, beautiful little rosebud surrounded and entangled by barbed wire. And that is the, uh, I think a powerful image and I'm glad the publishers agreed to my request to, to print it at the end of each chapter as kind of a reminder that, um, that Rosie's art is first and foremost, um, her, her manner of expressing herself in public. The two images that are on the cover, the front and the back cover of the book, the crosses that are there are really striking images. And it looks like it's also, they're also made from found objects. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, how Rosie made them and you know what they symbolize for her? Well, she's she was raised Roman Catholic and went to Catholic school, so, um, religious art has been a part of her early formation and continues to be meaningful to her. So on religious holidays, she often sends me, makes me something and sends it uh, to me in the mail. And the cross on the front cover she made for Easter. Um, and she used found objects, just uh, tongue depressors, and then used little bits of lace and other uh, fabric scraps and some glue. But the, uh, the cover art designer, Michael Kirk, I want to shout out, you know, praise for Michael, because he looked not only at the front of the cross and photographed that for the front cover, he also turned it over and looked at the back of the cross. And so, you know, the observer can see the scotch tape and process, if you will, of mm -hmm. crafting. Uh, and decided to put that on the back cover. And I've never seen that done before in cover art. And I think it's just brilliant. And um, 
brings a, a level of truthfulness, I guess, uh, to the art design. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very um, expressive. And I love how you say like, you can literally see the process of the making of the art as well as the product itself, which is, I feel like it brings us a little bit closer to Rosie and, you know, what she has to do to make art because we were just saying that um, because she's on death row, she doesn't have access to programs and um, materials as well. So she has to be extra creative, I'm sure, with how she creates and how she makes art. And one of the important parts of our relationship is the recognition of her resourcefulness. Um, I don't know that anybody had ever noted that before or appreciated her for it, uh, but you know how it works when somebody sees uh, sees us in action and uh, gives us comments and appreciation, and then it increases her resourcefulness and resilience, which are both very valuable qualities, um, both outside and inside. <laughs> I was curious because um, when I saw the crosses and hearing you talk about your time as a minister, it seems like your writing life, your um, you know, former life, uh, it, they're all kind of very well integrated. I was curious, you know, kind of how it's all tied together, if you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, Rosie's art more uh, conveys her inner process, her spiritual process. Um, mine um, actually is integrated. I'd say my faith and practice as a Quaker informed the whole beginning and this relationship has, has grown and uh, been strengthened through Quaker practice. But I came late to the Quakers. I didn't know about the Religious Society of Friends until I'd, after I'd retired from parish ministry. But my, my inner life, I guess you'd call me a contemplative. And when I first began to learn about uh, Quakers, my guide invited uh, all of us in the class to pick a historical figure, a Quaker from an earlier century, and research that person. And I was introduced to Elizabeth Fry, who lived in six, 1600s England and began doing prison visits and prison reform, dedicated, in fact, her whole life to that. So I read the journals of Elizabeth Fry. She wrote a lot about her life with God, her inner prayer that supported and sustained her as she went into the dungeons and uh, found women in extreme conditions and began uh, because she was a society woman and had social uh, impact. Uh, she was able to befriend the sheriff and the warden and get permission for other Quaker women to go behind bars with her and teach sewing and literacy and Bible study. So she became my, my heroine and my friend. And then I realized I wanted to do that too. I know when I was busy with parish ministry in San Francisco. I didn't ever have time to visit the prisoner, which is one of Jesus' invitations uh, to disciples. So that's when I, I was inspired to reach out to get acquainted with Rosie. But it had never occurred to me to write a book together. 
ever. That just had never crossed my my mind until I was um, in a hospital, broken, grieving. My son had died um, tragically in January. And in February, I fainted and fell and fractured and was doing rehab after surgery in a convalescent hospital. And I was awakened one stormy night by a vision. It sounds odd, but I saw on the ceiling of my hospital room the the words in Cristo, as if they were embroidered on a tapestry of some sort. And at first I thought that was Spanish and I didn't understand it. And a friend, a, a professor who's also a spiritual guide to me, said, Judith, that's not Spanish, that's Greek. That was the language Paul wrote. <laughs> In Christ, I live and move and have my being. Um, I went, oh, God, Greek. Well, you can tell I flunked Greek in seminary. Anyway, the, um, the message when I, I addressed in Christo, the message back to me was, um, write a book with Rosie. And I went, oh, come on, you know, ask somebody else. I, I'm disabled. <laughs> ask somebody who's is better shaped than me. <laughs> but um, that was a calling that I tried to duck and then couldn't. And I still wasn't doing very well. But after I got out of the hospital, I wrote to her and said, here's the deal. This is what, you know, God is asking of us. And here's my idea. And it wasn't a well thought out idea, honestly. I'm kind of embarrassed about it. But uh, she went off the rails. She just exploded. Her letter back to me was completely furious. She was going to sick her lawyers on me. And it was like, whoa, okay, I guess maybe that we're not going to do this. (laughs) And And, you know, as with many friendships, when we misunderstand each other, when we hurt each other, when there's confusion, um, we kept writing back and forth. Eventually, she calmed down and um, eventually I got more clear and more, uh, yeah, proposed what we wind up using was uh, her letters that she had been, she I'd saved every single one of her letters. Now, I didn't save my letters to Rosie, (laughs) except the ones that were on my computer, but none of the handwritten ones. Um, So I asked if I could go through her letters and find themes that were important to her and begin to draw those together into uh, chapters. And then, then she was in and she said, okay, we proceeded. That's amazing. It's amazing. I think it's interesting too how um, the, the Quakers uh, have often been involved in what we now think of as social justice. You know, um, not even even going into the prisons, obviously, but also they were a group that was you know against slavery and and um, things like that. So it's uh, yeah, I think that's amazing how that turned out. Yes, and my life in faith as a Quaker developed in concert with my relationship with Rosie. So the the two um, inform one another and strengthen one another. 
and some of those themes come out in the in the book. So had she saved your letters? She doesn't really have storage space. Um, she lives in a very small cell, and uh. um, on death row they have uh, drug sniffing dogs, for instance. And yeah. if anybody, you know, is anybody on the row, there are twenty three now. Uh, if anybody's found suspect, then all the all the cells are what they call tossed. Um, so correctional officers come in and just you know go through everything and throw it up in the air. And um, so that's all that to say. Um, Rosie doesn't have storage space and uh, no no safe place to keep anything. So um, I she has not saved my letters, and I don't expect her to. What do you think has been um, the most rewarding part of the process and the most challenging part of the process of putting this book together? Well, one of the most rewarding, I think, is um, I'm going to call it empathic imagination. <laughs> I don't know if that word makes sense to you or to your listeners, but um, we live in a time in history when empathy is uh, an endangered species, <laughs> you know, there's so much division and polarization uh, and empathy is, isn't, it's different than sympathy. It's not feeling sorry for or pitying, but empathy is feeling with, um, kind of aligning with the reality of the other. And um, so getting to know Rosie and receiving her truthfulness, she's a very honest woman. And there's no pretense or or guile, you know, about her at all. It is what you see is what you get. And uh, I'm a little more careful with my emotions and a little more guarded. And she's not. Uh, she's just right out there. So one of the most rewarding was feeling feeling her trauma and her tragedy, and having compassion for it. Um, but not getting overwhelmed by it, um, walking with her, if you will, but not carrying her burdens. I'm trained in my vocation as a spiritual director. I, I'm trained in a listening ministry. And I listen carefully to Rosie and reflect back what I hear. And you know how this works. When somebody listens deeply with their whole heart, then you hear yourself more clearly. <laughs> As one of my teachers says, we actually hear each other into speech. And that has happened uh, over the years between us. So Rosie has become more clear about who she is, what's important to her, how she's healing, how she's mending relationships with her uh, loved ones and with her victims. And it's been a very, uh, very touching, it is, continues to be a very touching journey. Uh, because she's growing spiritually, and so am I. Yeah. I also feel excited by her spunk and her spirit, and that's uh, that infuses. You know, I'm I'm a quiet mm, person who's quite happy to be to go unnoticed. You know, in the room, um, and uh, I think I've gained a little more zip. <laughs> little more spunk myself from being Rosie's friend. 
Mm, that sounds like such a beautiful friendship the two of you have. And, you know, we can, I think we can all kind of relate to that one or one or two people who are very special, who like really see us. And I, it sounds like you and Rosie really see each other. And that is something that's very precious and rare in the world. I think you're absolutely correct. To be able to really see somebody and to accept them in their fullness is a is definitely a gift. What do you hope to do from the book? I mean, well, I have two questions actually. Um, the first is, what do you feel, this may be hard to answer because I'm not sure if Rosie has um, seen the book in pieces or has she been able to sort of like take the book in it in its entirety so i'm curious to know what her reaction to the project has been when she's seen something close to the finished product and then the second question is you know what do you hope to do when with the book once it's published rosie's always had the first right of refusal i sent her drafts of each chapter as I finished them and said cross out anything you're not comfortable with and she then she would do that and send me back those pages no we can't use electronics so everything's slow slow go snail mail so it's been a a dialogical process mm -hmm. but that's beautiful though it's almost kind of it's almost like a ritual of the creation of the work sending her the work for consideration, sending it back to you for consideration, this conversation that's happening and the creative process that is going literally physically between hands. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've had to hold a firm line with the copy editors because I've, I quote much of, of uh, the content is actually in Rosie's words. Mm -hmm. uh, not in her handwriting, which is too bad because she has beautiful calligraphy handwriting. So I had to transcribe it, you know, into a text. But um, the uh, copy editor wants to correct her spelling, to correct her grammar. And I said, mm -hmm. oh, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> this is Rosie's voice. Let it stand just exactly as she put it down. And they they finally honored that. I'm so glad that you were able to win win that fight. Yeah, I was going to the mat on that. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I to and I totally agree with you that um, just even to honor your relationship with her, I, I, it, even as the reader, I'd want to read it in her voice, knowing that it's her voice, her words, right? I, I think you can tell the difference between somebody who's writing in their writing voice versus somebody who's writing in their thought voice or you know they're writing their inner monologue or writing a letter to a friend i mean th those have different tonalities than if you're writing a chapter for that purpose right so i think the audience would have been able to detect that as well yeah and the excerpts from rosie's letters were written you know totally unselfconsciously so neither of us had any notion that there would be a book coming out of that until just the last year and a half and so i know you, you can't really speak for her, obviously, and we don't have access to her. Um, a couple things. I, one thing I think is interesting is that your relationship has developed largely without the interference of technology um, in a way. And, and so um, because you're in close personal contact, 
in a in a sequestered environment, um, the human interaction is is I think something different than what we're usually faced with when we get to know people generally. You know, there are there are mediums of remove for most relationships that you and Rosie don't have. You're you know, it's direct contact and then you know letters. Um, but I was wondering if you could maybe talk about what her hopes might be for the project and yours as well. Well, my best inkling from Rosie herself is she has a big family and she tells me that they're excited uh, to see the book. And so, you know, she's, she's had a little buzz going with the people she corresponds with. And somewhat surprising to me, perhaps to you as well, is that a number of the COs, the uh, guards who uh, are stationed on death row, have um, become fond of her and ask her about when's the book coming out and they're telling her they're eager to see it and share it with their friends. So that seems to me to be an interesting bridge between incarcerated persons and those who make sure they follow the rules. And I, that pleases me that there's a sort of a tenderness in that that I hear and I'm glad to support. Yeah, there there is. I mean, I sort of think you know, our humanity will always out, even in situations where it may be discouraged. Um, it's pretty hard to stop us from connecting to each other as human beings, which is always a hopeful thing. Mm -hmm. I want to circle back to an earlier part of your question about um, the close contact. Um, this is one of the benefits, is that the word for it? Um, befriending someone on death row because because we are accorded privacy the attorney rooms are not um bugged <laughs> as far as i know and uh we're uh, protected from over um anybody listening in uh including the the uh, staff so what's what's has happened um although I don't know if Rosie would exactly use the same language, <laughs> my experience is something like a confessional. Um, you know, she grew up going to confession, but doesn't have a trusting relationship with the prison priest. So she's elected not to uh, confess to the priest, but she trusts me. So she has told me more of her heartache and, you know, the real the real deal, if you will. It's not in the book. It's not all in the book. There are little hints of it. Uh, and it'll, it'll never be made public. But um, she has entrusted her truth to me. And I don't know if that would be possible if she was in the general population and we were visiting at a round table in a busy and noisy cafeteria crowded with people. Um, so for that, I am grateful that privacy. Yeah, it makes the trust and what she's entrusted you with so incredibly precious. Mm -hmm. Right. And I've heard it said that, you know, if just one person knows the real truth, your, your heart truth, your soul, your gut truth, um, then you can, <laughs> you are known in the world. Um, mm. And I, I think I'm, I am that for Rosie, and I'm grateful to be. That's really beautiful. That is.
thank you so much, Judith, for, you know, sharing your journey and Rosie's journey uh, with us. It's such a precious story and um, hopefully it'll resonate with with folks as well. And we always ask um, our guests to share a message with folks inside who may be artists, in this case, writers. If you have a, a word of advice or inspiration for them, I think they would love to hear that from you. When you speak your truth, you know, with heart, uh, it changes other people's hearts. And that's my, my wish. My hope is that for those of us outside, uh, that some of the readers will awaken to the possibility of befriending incarcerated persons. And uh, that may help to bridge um, the barriers that, that prison walls and barbed wire set up. Thank you so much. I hope it does too. We can't wait to see the finished product when it comes out. Thank you for joining us here at Outside Inside Radio. We really appreciate your support. And you can find out more about us at www.prisonartscollective.com. I'm your host, Ella Turen. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Outside Inside Radio. Until the next time.